As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History. Before we dive into some amazing listener questions, here's Emmanuel Dubois from the fantastic Lafayette We Are Here podcast to let you know about some of the great French history podcasting he's doing over there. Lafayette, we are here. The French history podcast for the American public by a Frenchman. Learn all about France's fascinating history. It's great characters like Charlemagne, Joan of Arc, Louis XIV, or Napoleon, but also the great events that marked France, Europe, and sometimes the whole world. Lafayette, we are here. Available wherever you get your podcast or on lafayettepodcast.com. À bientôt. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, Episode 50, Questions and Answers, Part 1. First things first, Episode 50 is a big number, and I want to say thank you to everyone who's helped make this possible. To everyone who's helped Grey History reach the big 5-0, thank you so much for your support of the show. Whether it's been sharing the show with friends and family, leaving reviews, or sponsoring the podcast financially, I can't stress enough how grateful I am for the show's community. And I can't wait to bring you the amazing events of 1793 and 1794 in all their wonderful shades of grey. Now, there are some cracking questions in store for you today. And in fact, I've received so many questions that we're going to cover them over two episodes. But don't worry, these Q&A episodes will not delay a return to the main narrative, as I'll release part two in just one week's time. So. What are we actually going to cover in this episode? Well, we'll be covering key moments in Louis XVI's reign, exploring some interesting historical what-ifs, and discussing the impact of Icelandic volcanic activity on the revolution's eruption. Pun intended. We'll also be discussing Robespierre's role in the revolution, as well as my research methodology. Now, if you have sent in a question and you don't hear it in this episode, Rest assured, it will be in part two, coming out in one week's time. Also, if you can't wait that long for your next episode of Grey History, a reminder that there are five, soon to be six, full-length bonus episodes for everyone who joins the community on Patreon. Furthermore, patrons with early access can already listen to Grey History's next collaboration episode with another fantastic history podcast. I have teamed up with Mike Troy of the American Revolution podcast to discuss a whole range of topics relating to French participation in the American Revolutionary War. We'll get into why the French got involved, what support was initially provided, how French participation developed over time, and ultimately talk a little bit about how French-American relations developed after the Revolutionary War ended. There is some great discussions in that joint episode, and I know you'll absolutely love it. That is currently available for all the patrons with early access. So if you can't wait for more grey history, you know where to find some. 
Now, as this is not a main episode, I'll save the individual thank yous to the newest members of the Patreon community until the next main episode, which will be episode 53. And believe me, it will be an absolute cracker of an episode. Or perhaps that's just because I'm excited that I'll be able to name it after one of the best Star Wars lines of all time. It's treason then. Anyway, until then, thank you so much to everyone who has signed up to support the ongoing creation of Grey History. That's enough from me, so I hope you enjoy this amazing Q&A episode, and let's get into it. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 50, Questions and Answers. Part 1. Our first question comes from Cynthia. Hi, Will. It's Cynthia. Thank you so much for the amazing work that you do to put on every one of your podcasts. The level of detail is absolutely amazing, and uh, I'm always in awe. I am fascinated by Robespierre as a historical figure. He always is portrayed as the demon of the terror, and yes, it's true that he had a member. He, as a member of the Committee for Public Safety, he had a leading role, but he certainly wasn't the only member. And I think that history has laid a lot of crimes at his feet that he may not have been responsible for. That doesn't mean I condone the terror. That doesn't mean that I approve of the measures that were taken. But I don't know that we can fully appreciate the level of pressure and paranoia that was going on during that time. Um, I'd like to know, what do you think? Robespierre? Hardworking hero? sacrificing himself for the people, or maniacal dictator? I'd like to hear what you have to say. Well, thank you, Cynthia, for sending in a question, and thank you for your support of the show. I could not agree more that Robespierre is a fascinating historical figure. In fact, I find him to be one of the great enigmas of the revolutionary period, alongside someone like Louis XVI, ironically. And part of me doesn't want to answer this question right now because we're about to hit the period of time where Robespierre is really going to be at the apex of his power and of his influence and there's part of me that would rather answer this question after his fall rather than before it. However, I appreciate that that would be quite a disappointing answer and there's also part of me that thinks there might be some merit in me explaining my current thoughts and then re-answering this question later to enable, well, I suppose a compare and contrast between what I thought before we really got into the detail and then what I think afterwards. So where to begin? Let me start by saying that I 100% agree with your contention that Robespierre is used by some as a scapegoat. After the fall of Robespierre and his allies, there are absolutely people who wanted to minimise their own crimes and excesses to hide those things. And so what they were seeking to do was essentially pin these crimes and excesses on 
not only a man or someone else, but conveniently Robespierre because Robespierre was dead and therefore was unable to defend himself. So it was really a clever political manoeuvre by some. Now, not everyone got away with this. We will get into uh, the after effects of Robespierre's fall and, and who succeeds in the subsequent regime and, and who is executed for their crimes during the terror. But undoubtedly, aspects of Robespierre's legacy are muddled by those who are seeking to pass off their own crimes as those of Robespierre's. I also agree that Robespierre, along with really all the revolutionaries, were under immense pressure and influenced at times by what I think would be fair to describe as extreme paranoia. This understandably influenced their decision-making abilities, and we're going to continue to explore how belief in internal conspiracies and foreign plots and the like altered the course of the revolution and really had a profound impact on the dynamics of revolutionary politics. But to get to the crux of your question, do I think Robespierre was a hard-working hero or a maniacal dictator? Well, let's unpack this bit by bit, and let's start with the former. Was Robespierre hardworking? He was undeniably hardworking. Criticise Robespierre all you like, but he was not a sloth. He worked incredibly hard. Now, people might not like the ends he was working towards, sure, but you cannot deny that he literally exhausted himself pursuing his work. But was he a hard-working hero? Well, that is a very different question. Hero is not a word that I would personally use. I find Robespierre to be a deeply flawed figure, one whose shortcomings have quite detrimental consequences. Now, I do think that it's entirely possible that by the end of this series, my position on that may change. I certainly acknowledge the many positive contributions Robespierre makes towards the defence of the revolution against what can only be described as a series of existential threats in 1793 and 1794. But these positive contributions aside, to use the word hero, well, I'm not there. I'm not there yet anyway. I can see why some people consider him to be a hero, but I struggle to overlook some of what I consider to be quite considerable flaws. So what about the other half of your question? Was he a maniacal dictator? As it relates to the maniacal part, we will explore Robespierre's mental state as we get into the details of the revolution and the terror. It's not something that I really want to explore right now, but it's certainly, or there is certainly some contemporaries and historians who have made the case that Robespierre had lost touch or was losing touch with reality. But as I said, that's not something that I really want to unpack right now. What I do want to comment on, however, is the word dictator. I do not believe that Robespierre was a sole totalitarian dictator. And I use those words very deliberately. When we, in the 21st century, use the word dictator, we often think of the totalitarian dictatorships of the 20th century. The regimes led by people like Hitler and Stalin, uh, both of whom deserve a special place in hell. And in that sense, it would be wrong to associate Robespierre 
with those individuals. If that's your definition of a dictator, if that's what you think of when you think about dictatorship, then Robespierre is absolutely not a dictator. But the question of dictatorship more broadly, if you take a broader definition, perhaps a more traditional definition of the word, and you lose some of those 20th century connotations, well, then that becomes a bit more of an interesting question. As you alluded to, as you mentioned, the Committee of Public Safety is going to play a very important role in governing France during the Terror. And Robespierre was only one member of that committee. We will definitely be getting into so much grey history about the dynamics of that committee, its internal politics, who controlled what, as well as things like how the committee interacted with the convention, with the Paris Commune, with other committees, etc, etc, etc. In short, we will be exploring all of the grey surrounding the Committee of Public Safety. And you may have noticed that I've been using the episodes on the King's Trial to introduce future members of that committee, and I will be continuing to do so. And that's because I very much plan to put a spotlight on the activities of the committee, because I believe that if you really want to answer your question, if you really want to understand who was governing France during these monumental years, who was in control, if anybody, you need to unpack the workings of the Committee of Public Safety. Now, where I'm going with this is that I do believe France experienced a dictatorship, just not Robespierre's. I personally, currently, am more in the camp that Robespierre was part of a dictatorship as opposed to a dictator in his own right. What I'm saying, in a very roundabout way, but you know, I'm freestyling this, so give me some slack, is that I believe that France did endure dictatorship, but that dictatorship was that of the Committee of Public Safety. Now, this is inevitably a controversial position. Because there are some people uh, who would argue that Robespierre was a dictator in his own right. And there's other people who would argue that the Committee of Public Safety was not exercising a dictatorship at all in 1793 or in 1794. Now, those are just two camps which would oppose the perspective that I'm putting forth. And we're going to be exploring all of these opinions and more in future episodes and it's possible that my opinion might change. But for now, to summarise, I believe Robespierre was the most prominent member of a dictatorial committee. He was in many ways the face of that dictatorial committee. But critically, and here's the important part, he was just one member of that committee, and he was not in a position to force his will on that committee. In other words, he was part of a dictatorial government, but he was not the dictatorial government in and of itself. It's an important distinction that we'll be exploring in future episodes, and as I said, it's a point of view that is not without controversy. But the reason why I make that distinction, that he was part of a dictatorial government, but not the government in his own right, is that I would agree with your contention that Robespierre is sometimes blamed for the excesses in the terror which he himself was not personally responsible for. And I would argue that this is only possible because while part of the government, he was not solely in charge. 
And that's what enables and encourages some of that scapegoating. Now, as I said, it will be interesting to see how my opinion differs once we've completed the episodes on the terror and once I've gotten into the most intricate details on the Committee of Public Safety. But until then, that's my current opinion. I hope that answers your question. Our next question comes from Xavier from France. And Xavier asks, Louis XVI from hero to zero. Among all the mistakes Louis did during those three crazy years, in no particular order, the use of the veto, the flight to Varennes, it's legal because I said so, which one would be the turning point of his popularity? Which one would be the cause of his popularity collapse if you had to choose one? Well, thank you, Xavier, for the question. And thank you for your support of the show, not only on Patreon over the last few years, but also for helping to translate multiple sources from French into English. If I had to choose one, then it's got to be the flight to Varenne. Nothing else really comes close. Every other mistake, every other mishap, could be spun by some decent PR department. It could be blamed on corrupt ministers, on poor advisors, the court just doing things that the king wasn't aware of, etc, etc. But the flight to Varenne was a clear, and undeniable rejection of the revolution. And it occurred essentially two years into the revolution's existence. And of course, Louis left behind a document explaining and justifying his decision to flee. And in that manifesto, Louis denounced the revolution more or less in its entirety. He warned of the despotism of the clubs. He lamented the erosion of ancient institutions and customs. He listed his numerous grievances with the new order. And perhaps most importantly, Louis claimed that he had been the prisoner of Paris and announced that his concessions over the last two years were given only under duress. So in short, the king repudiated and rescinded everything. This was impossible to cover up. Now sure, the assembly did try. They said that the king had been abducted, but no one was really buying this. It was clear for all to see that this was a constitutional monarchy in which the monarch did not believe in or want the constitution. And he was a monarch who would probably seek to repeal that constitution when he first got the opportunity to do so. So yes, of course, there were other factors that contributed to his declining popularity, but this is the turning point. And part of the proof for that is the fact that it was only after the flight to Varennes that we start to see, really in the political mainstream, calls for not only Louis' dethronement, but also for the creation of a republic. That's when these ideas really hit the mainstream political debate, and they happen only after the flight to Varennes. Now, Toby from Czechia writes in with a question that is actually quite relevant to the flight to Varennes, And he asks, what if Louis managed to escape? Well, thank you for your question, Toby, and thank you for your support of the show. Well, this is a great question. When I think about the answer, I can't help but come up with multiple answers. Because the situation in which Louis XVI found himself in was complex, to say the least. For starters, it's clear that the revolutionaries thought they knew what would happen if Louis XVI had succeeded in the flight to Varennes, which occurred in June 1791. They believed that if Louis escaped the orbit of Paris, 
not necessarily escaped France, but at least the, from the control of the revolution, the chances were that a civil war would result, and potentially a foreign war as well. Now this isn't too far-fetched. You can see why people would assume this. And furthermore, you did have people like Mirabeau, who was, up until just a few months before, secretly advising the court to flee the capital, call his banners, and commence a civil war. So the textbook answer here is that if Louis escaped, conflict, either civil or foreign in nature, would have commenced. But this is where I think things really get interesting, and this is actually where I want to dive into this question. If we think about what that conflict would look like, let's start with the armed forces. What armies would Louis actually be calling upon? We know from defections and desertions within the officer class that he likely could have drawn support from that segment of the military. But what about the regular troops? Which reliable troops are going to be sent into the field? In 1788 and 1789, it was the unreliability of the troops which more or less forced the government to call the Estates General and forced the government to back down from the Parisian Rebellion, which ultimately stormed the Bastille. Since then, troop reliability and troop discipline had only gotten worse. This was a key focus of the bonus episode on the mutiny of Nasi in 1790. So I think that both sides would have had tremendous difficulty, at least initially, mobilizing forces for any sort of conflict. Now that's not to say that a conflict would be avoided, but I don't think a large-scale conflict would have immediately erupted overnight, given the disarray of the French armed forces at the time if Louis had successfully escaped the orbit of Paris. Keep in mind the shambolic mess that we saw when the French started their war against Austria in April 1792. It was an absolute chaotic scene. And so there's a big question in my mind as to whether or not Louis could have raised a substantial force and how disciplined and effective that force could have been. So when we're talking about what would have happened had Louis successfully escaped, well, then the answer is generally, well, a civil war would have resulted. But what I would be curious about in this hypothetical, what would that civil war actually look like? Because I don't think, well, I think the king is going to really struggle to raise a sufficient armed force in any sort of time. And then if we, if we kind of step away from the army and we look at policy, my next big question here is what policy position does Louis XVI have to adopt to be able to successfully wage some sort of civil war? He can't simply roll back the clock to 1787 when the first assembly of notables went rogue. So obviously, he's going to repeal things like the civil constitution of the clergy and the abolition of the nobility. But what about the constitutional questions which started all of this? How is he going to handle them? Would he return the National Assembly to an Estates General? If so, would the Estates General vote by head or by order? In other words, would the three estates vote as independent blocks, allowing a return to the dark old days where the two privileged orders could outvote the commoners two to one? This would not be an easy question to answer, because what might appease the arch-reactionaries of the court would almost certainly isolate the common people, whose support you need for any civil war. 
So good luck recruiting soldiers when you're telling them that you're going to reintroduce hated taxes and privileges and rescind the political participation that they've now become used to. In Abbe Siez's famous pamphlet, What is the Third Estate? Uh, Siez claimed that the commoners wanted to be something in the political order. Well, what is that something that allows Louis to appease his reactionary aristocrats while also gaining sufficient popular support amongst the common people? People who the king would need to both man and feed his armies. And given Louis's inability to proactively create policy, given his inability to stand resolutely behind ministers and policy, I'm not convinced that the court would have been able to come up with a policy that wasn't tone-deaf and completely inadequate for the situation at hand. After all, in 1787 and 1788, in the lead-up to the revolution proper, what we saw from Versailles was completely unrealistic and unimaginative policy responses, which generally resulted in a lot of angry people and a new minister. Now, to wrap this up, you may think to yourself, well, of course they would figure something out. But my question to that would be, would they? If you have a look over at the Russian Revolution, a key weakness for the counter-revolutionaries over there was an inability to rally soldiers to their cause because they could not agree on a coherent and attractive policy program. The white armies, led by traditionalist Russian officers, were not willing to give major concessions to either ethnic minorities seeking independence nor peasants seeking significant land reform. The whites' inability to develop coherent policy was a key part of their issue in fighting the Red Army. And I wonder if Louis would run into a similar problem, where he wouldn't have been able to develop and stand behind coherent policy that both appealed to enough people to join any counter-revolutionary coalition, while also keeping the arch-aristocrats or the arch-reactionaries in his aristocratic armies on side. One final thing, actually, while I think of it just on this question, in terms of what would have happened if Louis had succeeded, because I think that there's a really interesting historical hypothetical slash historical what-if here. It's interesting to ponder how the king's escape would have impacted republicanism in France. Obviously, if Louis was successful in his escape and victorious in any subsequent military and political settlement, he probably maintains his throne. But what if Louis fails in some civil war and has to abdicate? Do we still end up with a French republic? Or do we maintain some sort of constitutional monarchy in France? Now, obviously, I don't know the answer, but I'm not sure that a republic would have been the end outcome. Keep in mind that the French legislature negotiating with the king would have been the National Assembly. This assembly was full of monarchists. We saw in the aftermath of the flight to Varennes, the assembly contort itself to keep Louis on the throne, despite calls for the dethronement of the king in the streets. These cries went unheard. Now, obviously, if Louis had been in open rebellion against the assembly and the constitution it was writing, they're probably not going to welcome him back on the throne. But I do think there's a good chance that his son would have been installed as Louis XVII, under the regency and education of reliably revolutionary individuals. And I also think that there's a chance that perhaps a new family be installed on the throne, 
i.e. the conveniently nearby and pro-revolutionary Duke d'Orléans. So you've got to remember that the Republican element of the National Assembly was minuscule, and I do think that even after a civil war, there's a decent chance that the deputies of the Assembly would still try to find a constitutional settlement that involves a king. So it's an interesting food for thought that perhaps Louis's escape and subsequent defeat may have doomed his crown, but not necessarily the throne more broadly. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre-war disputes. We then go through the war itself and eventually reach the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, some unbelievable human achievements, and some all-too-familiar examples of greed, self-dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution podcast available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Grey History is only possible thanks to the support of the community. To access hours of exclusive bonus content, as well as receive an ad-free version of the podcast, you can support the show on Patreon and keep Grey History on the air. There are several amazing bonus episodes available to patrons of the show, including episode 27, a deep dive into the infamous mutiny of Nasi in 1790. There's also the two episodes on scientists during the revolutionary era, one focused on chemistry and the other on life sciences. The fathers of modern chemistry and paleontology were both French scientists, and their amazing work is just some of what's covered in those episodes. So, if you're enjoying Grey History, if you find it educational, if you find it entertaining, I need your help to keep retelling history in a way that isn't black and white. Help keep the show on the air and enjoy all the amazing perks that come with it. For as little as a $2 donation when main episodes are released, you can do your part to support Grey History, and you can cancel any time if you stop listening to the show. So don't miss out on some amazing bonus episodes. Just Google Grey History Patreon or click the link in the show notes or on the website. 
Now, Xavier has a follow-up question on this theme of hero to zero, which relates in particular between 1789 and 1792. So the first three years of the revolution, or when the revolution's in its constitutional monarchy phase. And he asks, considering all the fallen heroes who could have been one of the big winners of the early days of the revolution and ended up so poorly, and then he lists people like Meunier, Lafayette, Petian, Sierz, Barnev, etc. Who is the biggest failure in your opinion, and who wasted his chance in the most spectacular way? So, when I first read this question, I was thinking that I could go through those five individuals that Xavier mentioned, Meunier, Lafayette, Petian, Sierz, and Barnev, and do a brief recap of maybe where they are and in what ways they won and lost. And then I realized that that would more or less become an episode in and of itself. So I'm going to give two honorable mentions to who I think are some of the biggest losers of those constitutional years. And then I'm going to name someone who at the moment I'm willing to declare to be, well, maybe not the winner of the title of the biggest loser of 1789 to 1792, but certainly up there in contention. The first name that came to mind was Meunier, and we first met Meunier when he was a key figure for the Vassil Assembly, the regional estates general in the Dauphine that acted as a precursor to the estates general at a national level, and in some ways this miniature estates general, the Vassil Assembly, made the larger, more national, well the national estates general, uh, the summoning of that body almost inevitable. And this is all the way back in episode 7, The Cradle of the Revolution. Now, once at the Estates General, this radical led the Dauphine deputies, who along with the Brenton Club, helped to ensure the Third's obstruction of the verification process and thus facilitated the unification of orders. It was Meunier who suggested the famous tennis court oath, where deputies swore to remain united until a constitution had been established, and it was Meunier who had led what we call the English bloc during the debates of the summer of 1789, most notably championing both the creation of a Senate and granting the King an absolute veto. However, the leader of these more conservative monarchists within the National Assembly lost those two debates in September 1789, and then was subsequently outraged when the October Days happened. You'll remember the October Days is when tens of thousands of Parisians, most notably market women, essentially marched on Versailles and, after chasing the Queen around the palace, forced the royal family to return to Paris and, uh, at that point in time, henceforth reside in the capital. Now, from Meunier's perspective, he thought the revolution had gone too far, it had become too violent, it was adopting too radical philosophies, and so he just quits. On the 8th of October, which is two days after the October Days, the March of the Market Women, uh, he quits revolutionary politics. Now, in some ways, this makes him a significant loser because it's his key policy initiatives relating to the King's veto and the Senate that fail. And instead of continuing the fight and helping to try to clean up and stabilise the mess that he helped to create, he just throws in the towel. On the other hand, he does survive the French Revolution, and many of his counterparts do not. So in some ways, you can say that he can't be the biggest loser because he's going to walk out of this with his head still attached to his body. And in fact, he will serve as a senior official in the Napoleonic regime. So in some ways, he's a substantial loser, but in other ways, 
he wins if by no other means than he's still alive by the end of it. Now, the other honourable mention that I think uh, should be noted just quickly is Necker. Necker, of course, the financial minister at the start of all of this chaos. If you look at his handling of the Estates General, I think you can be really critical of his actions. He has no real plan on what to do once the Estates General opens. He's essentially a deer in headlights. He has so much opportunity, so much individual political capital, and there seems to be a real inability to actually convert any of that into tangible outcomes. He, he just, he's just unable to really not only set an agenda or steer the deputies or the, of the Estates General towards that agenda, but he seems reluctant to even try to create one. And I'm sure he, from his point of view, was, um, you know, had his hands tied behind his back to an extent through the court and through his position as minister. But ultimately, I view Necker as one of the most overrated national heroes of the early revolution. He's got to be up there with people that had so much prestige and what appeared to be so much influence and failed to capitalize on it to any great extent. But the person that I am going to give the award to, or at least the serious contender for the biggest loser of those early constitutional years, would be Barnev. And Barnev had once been a radical in the early days of the National Assembly. He voted against the existence of a Senate, he had championed controversial religious reforms, and even in 1791, at the start of 1791, he was a proper thorn in the side of Mirabeau right up until the Count passed away. But Barnev, as we know, completely flipped in the wake of the flight to Varennes, along with Duport and Lamette, and these three helped to lead the Fillons in the final months of the Assembly. Now, this flip was in part inspired by fear of war with European powers, as well as fear of unrestrained democracy. He was also wary of constitutional complexities of removing the king, and keep in mind that as a member of the National Assembly, or for the National Constituent Assembly, he had spent the last two years trying to establish a constitution. Now, it's pretty obvious why Barnev would be eligible for the award of gigantic failure. All you have to do is look at his actions after the flight to Varennes. On the 15th of July, 1791, the National Assembly exonerated the king for his failed escape attempt. Barnev made a series of speeches on the 15th and the 16th defending the National Assembly's controversial decision to exonerate Louis. Barnev warned that the revolution was dangerously unstable. He, he argued that it had to be consolidated. He warned that private property was under threat. He warned that royalty was under threat. But most importantly, he has this famous line where he asks his peers if they were willing to end the revolution or if they were willing to start the revolution all over again. And so Barnev was seeking to halt the revolution, to consolidate the revolution of 1789, and yet, less than a year after the constitution of 1791 came into effect, the insurrection of 10 August 1792 had toppled both that constitution as well as constitutional monarchy more broadly. Barnev had strived to keep the monarchy alive in France to prevent another revolution, and he utterly, miserably failed at both. On a side note, he also failed to keep France out of a war with Austria and Prussia, which was discussed in one of the episode extras for episode 25. Ultimately, Barnev will be executed in the terror, and given his policy priorities, given the course of the revolution, 
one can make an argument that he was one of the greatest losers of the early revolutionary era. Pretty much everything he strived towards accomplishing, he fails at, and ultimately he will lose his life. Our next question comes from Joel, and thank you to Joel for his support of the show on Patreon. Joel asks that if there's any truth in the fact that French crop failures may have been caused by effects of an Icelandic volcano around that time. So Joel's talking about the crop failures leading up to and immediately before the French Revolution. And Joel asks if there's any truth behind this. So let's discuss what happened, and then we'll discuss the impact. So for six months, an Icelandic volcano named Laki did indeed experience a series of eruptions Uh, which I'm going to not scientifically say reasonably sized eruptions, not quite the size of, say, Mount Vesuvius, uh, starting in June 1783. And what's most interesting about these eruptions is that they produce what contemporaries called a dry mist that covered all of Europe. And I really do mean all of Europe. There's records of this dry mist covering Lisbon and Moscow and Lebanon and the entire continent experienced this quite extraordinary event. And so for ease, I'll also refer to this mist as a haze, but what this mist was was actually sulfuric aerosol cloud. And if that sounds like it's bad for one's health, it was. Interestingly, right off the bat, there is a French connection to this dry mist, because the first person outside of Iceland to theorise that this mist was connected two Icelandic volcanoes, or Icelandic volcanic activity, was a French scientist. Now, people at the time weren't sure why this mist had arrived in Europe, most notably in summer, and there were other theories, including connections to everything from earthquakes to fumes arising from the ground. Anyway, by June, all of Europe was experiencing this haze, and it took several months before it disappeared, and this haze dimmed the light of the sun in some areas actually quite significantly, and as a result, the eruption of Laki had direct impacts on the climate of Europe in 1783, and also harvests and human health, as you would expect. There's records of wheat being turned yellow and looking as if it had been scorched by frost, there's records of corn withering, outdoor labourers in particular were impacted because you can see records of increased incidences of everything from respiratory difficulties to asthma attacks and headaches, etc, etc. So this is a pretty terrible time to be in certain parts of Europe, and it impacted the continent differently. So for example, Western Europe experienced an unusually hot and dry summer, while it was snowing near Moscow in the middle of July. By winter, however, everyone across the continent was experiencing a more uniform effect, and it was a very cold winter, with temperatures in Paris consistently below freezing in January 1784. And of course, this meant shortages in things like firewood and other key supplies, in addition to its impacts on crops. Now, interestingly, if we take a break from Europe and look over the pond, the winter of 1783-1784 was particularly bad in the eastern United States. The Mississippi River was filled up with ice fragments even as far south as New Orleans in February, and this is also considered one of the three landmark winters of the century in the eastern United States. In fact, 
harbours and channels in Chesapeake Bay were frozen up as well. Furthermore, heavy snowfalls and icy conditions and frozen harbours hampered many congressmen from heading to Maryland to sign the Treaty of Paris, which formally ended the American Revolutionary War just months before. So not only Europe, but the Northern Hemisphere more broadly was impacted tremendously by this volcanic activity in Iceland. So to answer your question, yes, there is definitely an impact on the climate in the summer of 1783 and the winter of 83-84 from this volcanic activity. But that is quite a few years out from the French Revolution. You may remember that one of the most famous crop failures in the lead-up to the revolution was linked to hailstorms that devastated crop yields. Uh, It dropped hailstones the size of golf balls that literally killed birds and rabbits uh, as the skies opened up. Well, that hailstorm occurred in 1785, so two years after the eruption commenced. Which then brings us to the obvious question. Clearly, the volcano's eruption impacted not only the climates of Europe and also North America and across Asia as well, but how long did this impact last? And the short answer is that scientists disagree on the extent of the disruption and how long it lasts for. It's certainly possible that climate fluctuations and associated bad harvests in the years prior to the revolution were impacted in part by Larkey's eruption. But modelling a volcanic eruption from a couple hundred years ago is no easy task, and so the jury's still out. There are some scientists who, who say, well, from their belief, that absolutely the harvests of 84 and 85 were impacted, but others acknowledge that it's possible, but they're not so convinced. So to answer your question, the eruption caused considerable short-term fluctuations in the climate, and it did have consequences on the environment and the harvests. And I mean, this is sort of to be expected. What we're talking about here is a haze that not only dimmed the sun in the middle of summer, but in parts of northern Europe, the haze was so thick that ships couldn't even leave port. So yes, this volcanic activity definitely had an impact. But beyond the effects on crops and harvests in the summer of 1783 and maybe 1784, the jury is still out. And so it's more than possible that those harvests in 84 and 85 were impacted. I can't give a definitive yes. Also, that is quite some way before, say, 1788, 1789. You may remember that in January 1789, just before the Estates General sat, that was a particularly bad winter. It uh, contributed to inflation and commodity shortages, things like firewood, etc. By that point in time, we're talking about environmental conditions which probably aren't associated with the volcano. So, if you like, this is grey science. And if you like grey science, do make sure you check out the two bonus episodes on scientists during the revolutionary era because they're absolutely fantastic and they're some of my favourites. French scientists uh, were actually, a French scientist discovered the fact that water was not an element, but actually comprised of oxygen and hydrogen, and that revolutionized our understanding of chemistry. There was also a French scientist who discovered or was able to definitively prove that extinction was indeed a real thing. Uh, These are just some of the great topics covered in those two bonus episodes on scientists during the French Revolutionary Era. So if you haven't already, do make sure that you check them out on Patreon.
Our next question comes from Lorenzo, who says, Greetings from Italy. Uh, How do you conduct the historical research needed to create an episode? So this is an interesting question. So I have, let's call it 10 books, that number fluctuates, that I will reread ahead of an episode. And that will help me kind of re-familiarize myself with the landscape, key developments, uh, perhaps most importantly, interesting rabbit holes that I might want to go down and explore. And all of these works have been written in the last hundred years or so. And they're written from historians who originate from a variety of backgrounds. In terms of nationality, you've got some that are French, some that aren't. In terms of generation, you have people like historian George Lefebvre, who was publishing in the, uh, let's call it, late early, early mid 20th century, uh, while people like historian Timothy Tackett and historian Peter McPhee, they're still publishing at the moment or have been doing so up until relatively recently. And these historians come from a variety of schools of historical thought. Some are more conservative and revisionist in nature. Some belong to the Marxist school of historiography. Uh, And just to be clear, that doesn't mean that they were necessarily themselves Marxists so much as they tended to uh, interpret the revolution primarily through the prism of class conflict and the relationship between classes. So what I have here is a series of about 10 to 12 books, the, the number fluctuates depending on where we are, that I will reference to kind of get an initial frame of reference as we head into a uh, particular part of the revolution. So that, that's the first thing that I will do. And, and those books will change over time. So for example, as we head into the terror, there will be resources that are kind of coming in that I will be referencing far more often. And there are some resources that are, are no longer relevant. And in addition to these base books, is probably somewhere between, let's call it 20 to 30 books that I will consult on an ad hoc basis. And this may be because I'm looking for more primary evidence. Maybe I'm looking for a particular quote from witnesses or participants. Uh, it may be that I'm looking from an additional perspective on a topic that perhaps was only briefly covered in one of the core books that I initially referenced. Uh, after about 50 episodes, you get pretty good at having a gut feel as to where to look for something that you're looking for. And so that definitely helps me kind of navigate these 20 or 30 or so uh, additional books. Uh, Also, historians often have particular styles in their writing with a focus on particular things. So once again, you do get a sense of, of where to go looking if you want something in particular. So for example, if I want to get a better understanding of discussions within or motivations of or tensions between the Saint culottes and the radicals of Paris, I may spend more time reading work by historians from the Marxist school of historiography because they tend to dive into those details more. They tend to focus on those issues more rather than simply um, what some conservative historians might do, which is just discussing the mob at some higher abstract level. Uh, So I suppose, in short, there's a large library of additional books that I'll call upon uh, regularly as I need to. And then In addition to that, there are specialty books, uh, specialty journal articles, um, primary evidence such as newspapers, documents, letters, etc. that I will consult or go and discover when I'm talking about certain topics, particularly specialist topics. So when you're really in the weeds on something and you want to get into the details of a very specific thing, such as I don't know, let's say uh, Thomas Paine's influence on the Girondin Constitutional Project of 1793, uh, that's where real niche 
specialty resources need to be consulted. And it might be that I only consult that for a single episode. Or if you think about, uh, say, non-constitutional priests and refractory clergy, that's an example where I might be consulting very specialist uh, material uh, for a couple of episodes and then either not reference it again or I might come back to it, but it might be 10 or 15 or 20 episodes until I next need to come back to that highly specialized material, which you know might be uh, discussing non-constitutional priests in Western France. So in summary, there's a series of more generalist books that I will always consult before each episode as I kind of get a frame of reference. Then there's a much larger series of books, which I often call upon on a semi-regular basis. And then finally, there are very specialized niche resources, whether they be books, journals, um, newspaper articles, primary evidence, speeches, etc., that I will use that are often topic dependent. And I will go and reference those or go look at those when I'm getting really into the weeds about a specific topic. And maybe to make this a little bit more tangible in terms of numbers, for the September massacre episodes uh, in my research notes spreadsheet, which I compile everything into, there are 30 separate authors that are in that spreadsheet for the September massacre episodes. And I definitely would have consulted more resources than that number. It's only if a historian says something particularly noteworthy or provides a really interesting fact or quote or the like, that that would have then made it into my database where I gather everything in one location. So there are 30 separate authors in that database and, and more than 30 separate pieces of works would have been consulted for the September Massacre episodes. So it's a very thorough process, uh, certainly as history podcasts are concerned, uh, and that's what helps to make the show what it is. Thank you for listening to episode 50, Questions and Answers, part one. I hope you enjoyed this Q&A episode and there are some great questions coming your way in part two. This includes discussions as to why the French revolutionaries did not take more inspiration from the American constitution, questions around the new regime's tax system, as well as how the revolution's popularity changed over time. That's just a taste of what's coming in part two. A reminder that the next collaboration episode is already available for those patrons with early access. It's a fantastic episode where we'll explore everything there is regarding French participation in the American Revolutionary War. So check that great discussion out with Mike Troy from the American Revolution podcast. If you're enjoying Grey History, the best way to access more Grey History and to ensure more Grey History in the future is by supporting the show on Patreon. There's links in the show notes, on the website, or just Google Grey History Patreon. As always, thank you so much to all the patron supporters of the show for helping to keep Grey History on the air. Thank you for listening, and have a great day. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.